Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining us again today on another edition of the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. We are grateful to our friends at Rise FM Ohio for helping us put this out there and to talk life, leadership, lessons, and we like to do that in a world of sports in a world of leadership, comedy, with authors, with pastors, and the list goes on. And, and I'm excited today. I had the pleasure of being through my board on a sabbatical last year for nine weeks. And I read 23 books. And I'll give people time to applaud that. Okay, great. It was, it was a lot of fun to be able to read that many books and, and did a lot of the things people do, travel, spend extra time with family, um, but just to really deep dive into some books and probably the book that most impacted me was with today's guest when Collier wrote a book called the burning in my bones about the life of Eugene Peterson. And he's been gracious and is going to bless us by being here today. And I'm not going to say a whole lot more about when he also leads and directs and guides the uh, Eugene Peterson center for, I'm going to say it wrong for Christian imagination. Did I say that right when? You got it. That's good. And uh, yeah, instead of me going off on some big tangent about what all you've done, when it's just a pleasure to have you. I think, appreciate you being consistent to be able to see this time through with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. It was kind of you. I'd like to start first really with anybody and everybody. Tell us kind of your three to five minute testimony, kind of, you know, before you knew Jesus, God kind of drawing you in and then coming to Jesus and what that looked like growing up years, family life, whatnot. Give us that response. Well, my dad's a a pastor in Waco, Texas. In fact, just got back last night from being at his installation ceremony uh, service as the pastor emeritus. He's been there for 39 years. So I was there from the time I was in sixth grade. And before that, my dad was a traveling evangelist. And so we traveled around in a 40 foot fifth wheel trailer and church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, every night to Friday. So I, I came to faith when I was like four years old. So I had a, I lived a very sordid background. I would, you know, rob other kids, pacifiers in the nursery and that sort of thing. And um, had a very dramatic conversion. But um, so really I've, my whole life has been trying to follow Jesus. I've definitely had seasons as I got older where big questions loomed and I, I had to really grapple with, is this faith really my own and that and that sort of thing. But the story of Jesus has been the compelling story of my heart and life for as long as I know. So yeah, that's, I don't have a dramatic conversion story. Well, let me ask you this. So I saw this on your bio and you just said it, but it can almost be missed. So until you were about the age of 11, you lived in a different town every week. Okay, so yeah. I love the pacifier joke about stealing people's pacifiers and repenting. Um, what is that like? Because there's clearly most people are not telling a story that for the first decade plus of their life, they bounced around. Uh, and how has that you know, had implications today? I mean, I'm guessing you probably like to travel. 
I do. I love to travel. I also have very strong bladder because my dad didn't like to stop for bathroom breaks. So, you know, I was trained to every, you know, eight, eight hours. Yeah. You know, it was really kind of magical in some ways. I mean, we, I saw almost all of the United States before I was, you know, nine, 10 years old. Most Saturday mornings, my mom and sister would stay in the trailer as my dad and I would get up early and I'd get in the truck with him and we'd head off into the sunrise and Usually, uh, I keep my eyes peeled for a Shoney's so we could pull mm. over for breakfast at some point. And I was kind of my dad's shotgun. And I even had a CB handle. I mean, my dad was always on the CB radio talking to truckers and getting weather reports and traffic stuff. And I mean, it's it was a very nomadic life and met all kinds of people. And I mean, it was a bizarre life, too. I mean, we were, you know, we were homeschooled but we didn't really have a chance for like co-ops or anything i mean our life was very our family and beautiful thing about that was just our family grew really close and when we when my decide my dad decided to to become a pastor of a church in waco texas i i didn't want to do that at all i loved i loved traveling but i also think for many years of my life i've been really aware of this desire for roots for a deep sense of belonging to a place mm. and the history. And um, I have wondered how much of that is sort of this, this yearning for a sense of belonging that I didn't enjoy as a child. So I don't know all the ways, but I, I look back on those days with a lot of gratitude. It's interesting you say that because I think belonging is something, whether it's a location thing, whether it's a relationship thing, it's it's groups or organizations or sports teams or whatever, it's something we all have a great desire for. I was I was listening to podcasts actually this morning on the way here. Kurt Thompson, the the medical doctor who's written some books and does does a lot with neuroscience. He you know he talks about that well and and you know he's written a couple books where that gets hit on. But yeah, that would be really interesting because I think you know I, I'm totally enamored by the whole travel thing with you. And how, how long have you been in Western Seminary in the Peterson Center? How long have you been there? About a year and a half. Oh, okay. So yeah, you really don't have roots there at this point either. You're probably still in a very much newlywed kind of state. So how long were you in Waco then growing up or whatever part of your life? I mean, I guess I left for college and then seminary, you know, I haven't lived there for a really long time. We, we were in Charlottesville, Virginia before here, where I was a founding pastor of a church where we'd been for a long time. So I haven't actually lived in Texas since I was in seminary. But, you know, if you're a Texan, you're kind of always a Texan, perhaps perhaps annoyingly. So Waco, Texas, people are going to typically think of two things really jump out. The national championship, Baylor Bears, least in basketball, but just the school Baylor. And then obviously there's these two people there, Chip and Joanna Gaines, which gets a lot of love. I read his book, trying to think which one it was. It wasn't was it maybe No Pain, No Gains, or one, one of those books? And one of the things I was really blown away by, and, and I'm curious where this resonates with you, is um, I'm, I've been involved in our community big time many ways, been on boards, tied to our chamber, whatever. And Chip Gaines, and I think Joanna's obviously no different, but Chip Gaines clearly loves that city, that community. You know, They do like a music festival, various Magnolia kind of stuff. I mean, do you have that coming? I mean, you've been gone for a while, but do you have that kind of – love, passion, whatever for Waco and talk a little bit about Waco life versus Charlottesville or, you know, you've obviously had this sense of belonging. What does that look like and getting some of that probably there? Yeah. Well, first I have to say, I'm just, when you said two things, I was just really glad you didn't 
mentioned Koresh and Branch Davidians because for a long, long time, when people would mention Waco, that's all that came to mind was mm. that tragic story. So, sure. yeah, you know, when I left Waco, I think I didn't really understand my longing for place or even how God thinks about places and cities. And, and, and I think I, I was just probably even glad to leave. But over the years, you know, the place that you grow up is a place that, you know, like you don't know any other mm. place, you know, the cadence, you know, the, 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 the side streets, you know, where to get the best burger and where to not get a burger. And, and, you know, the stories, the history, the, the tragedies, the, the joys. And so, yeah, I mean, every time I go back to Waco, there's this sense of like, I, I know this place. I know these people, which is a really profound thing to feel. And Charlottesville is a very different place, very different culturally. But I mean, we really gave ourselves there and I had every intention of, of retiring from that church. And so to, to be in Michigan in a place I never anticipated living at all is is a little shocking but mm. it's also it has its own immense beauty and so just kind of uh grateful for all the places god's allowed us to receive the gifts of of that are unique to that place sure i you know, i meant to say when you said it earlier when you said cb handle man my heart leapt i'm like my kids you know thir 13 to 19 i have four kids between those ages if they heard you say that they would be like what cb handle and i remember you know my dad having that and what a i mean that flooded me with thoughts and memories of my dad traveling and you know that was kind of your google your maps your figure out all kinds of things and that's just so neat to think you had that and when you said shoney's i mean i grew up in nashville for a number of years and you know i can definitely relate to the shoney's aspect of that and well before i get stuck there because i could stay in this part of the conversation for a while let, let's talk eugene peterson so at least for me, and I would imagine this is probably somewhat true for most people, when his name comes up, either people don't know who he is or they totally know who he is through the message, through numerous books. You know, I, I think in recent years prior to his death, I can't imagine how many people have gone to YouTube and typed in Eugene Peterson Bono. I've shared that on Facebook probably a couple times, their conversation in his home in Montana and whatever. So you've obviously got some breadth and depth of knowing him. You did massive, massive research, interviewing. So two questions in that. Talk about Eugene Peterson to you, but also talk about that as a book writing project. I mean, you you bid off a very robust project there. Yeah, I did. And there were definitely times where I was, I knew I was in way over my head. I remember sitting in our living room and had thousands of letters strewn out around me and manuscripts and journals and none of it was organized. And I remember thinking, how in the world am I going to sift through all this and cull a beautiful story? Because it's one thing to collect facts. It's, it's another thing to tell a beautiful story. And that's what I wanted to do. So it was, it was three and a half years and yeah, it was daunting and, and a profound challenge and also a, like a genuine delight. For me personally, I first encountered Eugene when I was a bivocational pastor in Denver. Uh, this would have been, I think, uh, 99 or so. And one of the elders of the church on a Sunday after church came up to me and handed me a copy of a book and said, I think you'll enjoy this. And he handed me Eugene's 
book called Working the Angles, The Shape of Pastoral Integrity. Mm. And I realized later what he meant was not, you know, I think you'll enjoy this, but I think you need this. <laughs> and sure. I was in a place, you know, I was, I was still pretty fresh out of seminary. I was grappling with what with you know what does ministry look like what what am i supposed to be in the world i'd had a difficult experience with the first church where i worked at out of seminary and um i just didn't know i didn't know what it meant to be a pastor i mean it's a language that i grew up around but i still didn't know what it actually meant and as i began reading i was only probably a page in with with uh, working the angles and it just smote my heart mm. because i began to um he just has this this resistance to sort of an Americanized vision of church leadership, which can be very ego-centered, and it can be very sort of having more to do with business leadership than sacrificial love. And so I just, I began to be unmade by his, his um, laying out this story of what being a a local pastor loving particular people not just trying to build a religious organization but loving a community and i just i was smitten and began to write him letters i talked to uh, my first book was being published and it was one of his publishers i talked him into giving me his address and i began to write him letters and i was you know when he wrote me back i just thought man, I'm just so unique. I'm getting letters back from Eugene. Didn't realize that, you know, 20 years later, I would have thousands of these letters in my, mm. in my house and realize I wasn't that unique at all. But just, we just began to write letters and he began to be a pastor to me in that way. And we built a relationship and friendship. And then in 2016, I became his biographer and it was no greater surprise <laughs> than when he said yes to my idea of, of writing his story. So it was uh, remarkable. See, I'm kind of surprised when you say three and a half years, that that number to me almost seems small having read the book. And you talk a little bit in there about, you know, I don't remember if it was in the forward or in the book itself, a little bit about the mammoth part of what that is. I mean, I once heard someone say that the average author spends two years of their life writing a book. So if you read 25 books a year, you're getting 50 years of life experience. Well, in your case, I'm getting you and I'm getting Eugene Peterson and it. It feels like a whole lot of Eugene Peterson and you were very fair. I felt like you were honorable, but you know, let's think about some of the stuff you get into there. You talked about multiple times him really fighting this urge to kind of be this famous pastor and people being drawn to him and making him a celebrity. And then when he stepped away, he was honest according to what you shared and struggled with that. You were very honest about his marriage, kind of the good, the ups, the downs, the realities there. Really, really good stuff with the church, but really hard stuff and things that kind of appalled him about the church. And, and I found myself like, and there's other cases where this has happened, where I was drawn in and a bigger fan of Eugene Peterson, but he was flawed. He was not perfect. And I just thought you navigated that so extremely well. I mean, when you hear a guy like me say, okay, I read 23 books during my sabbatical, and most all of them are really good. This was probably the most impactful. You know, I might set you up to get, you know, blow up your ego here or something like that, because, you know, I'll, I'll hold you to, you know, when you were four, you stole a bunch of pacifiers. But do you hear that? And it, it's like, man, I'm glad that was worth the effort. Do you think, I mean, what, what do you think about that? I mean, you poured yourself into this. I can't imagine doing it, knowing all the times you could have quit. 
and not wanting to stick it out. So how does that hit you when you hear that? Well, I mean, mainly I think I'm just, I feel grateful. I'm grateful that Eugene's story landed that way in your heart. And I think I just, I genuinely love Eugene and maybe even beyond that, I, I know that I'm desperate to encounter the stories of people who live true. Mm. I am exhausted by the fabrications, the, you know, building of image that has no substance behind it. There was a little bit of trepidation going into this project of, you know, I'm going to be reading his journals. I'm going to be talking to people in interviews from every stage of his life. What am I going to encounter? Because all of us know that there are story after story of, of religious leaders who behind the scenes are not at all what they present themselves to be in public. And, and it's absolutely true. Eugene was not perfect. And I didn't expect that, but, and, and being honest about his life was an essential part of the story. Nothing would dishonor Eugene's own convictions mm -hmm. more than by putting a plastic facade on his life. He, he was all about being truthfully honest about our humanity before God. And so that was essential, but I can honestly say I encountered a man who uh, deeply loved and knew God and pursued God with his life and who was truthful and honest. And I'm, I'm desperate for those stories myself. And so I, I wanted to tell that story and I wanted people to encounter Eugene. And I didn't want people to just hear sort of the biographical details of his life. I wanted them as much as I, it was possible, I wanted them to have an encounter with Eugene through the book, to meet him, because the real genius of Eugene, for me, was not the words he wrote. It was actually his presence in the world. It was the way he lived, and it was counter to the ways that most, so many of us live. It's, it was almost, it's almost abrupt in how it like confronts the, the pace of our life, the tone of our life the assumptions of our life. And so I wanted people to meet that. And the only way to do that was by trying to unfold who he was in his deep soul and how he lived in the world. And so to hear anyone say, I, I feel like I, I met Eugene. I feel like, I feel like I know something about who he is. Like that's just immensely meaningful to me. And I think you said it well, you talked about encounter versus just biographical and I've, I think about, I've seen two things stand out that I've seen about him over the years. The Bono thing, which have you, I assume you've seen the Bono thing that was on YouTube, the, them together. Yeah. Um, and then mm -hmm. there was an interview. I forgot who it was. It was almost like a, like a prominent guy at a university. And, 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 and in that interview, he was talking a lot about when he told, I don't know if it was like a grandkid of his or somebody about Bono. He had no clue who Bono was and Bono wanted to spend time with him and just kind of his humility, his you know, he didn't try to make the world bigger than what it was, which I think sometimes we do that. There's obviously simplicity to him, but um, speak to, like in that video in Montana at their home, I love the little simple preparation that was going on before Bono arrived with him and Jan. I think she made, like maybe it was just chocolate chip cookies or something pretty simple, and he's getting a coffee ready. Yep. And it was like the simplicity of them doing their own thing, and yet there'd be that loving glance which wasn't over glorifying. Like, I don't think you jump to think like they had the perfect marriage necessarily, but there was a simplicity and the Bono just came in and you could tell his, I don't want to say reverence, but really high honor for him. And they sat and talked quite a bit about Psalms, if I remember, but did you ever go to that home of his in Montana? 
Oh yeah, I spent lots of time there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was it's uh, for lots of people actually. I mean, the, the number of people they welcomed into their home was pretty phenomenal, and it was definitely a sacred place for a lot of people. I mean, it was such a human place. It was filled with art and beauty, and but their life was very common and simple, and it's it was their commonness and their simplicity that makes it extraordinary because I think their home was a place of laughter, but it was also a quiet place. Mm. There was almost always a fire going. There was a ritual and rhythm to their life of, you know, the French press coffee in the morning, the paper, the time in scripture and silence and prayer, the journaling, you know, Jan would go three times a week to go do Tai Chi and, like, you know, in, in those latter years, they just had this rhythm to their life that felt like a, like almost like hours of prayer. It was just this sacred and so human. I mean, they loved good food and cooking together. And one of my favorite images, and I've, I've actually heard other people describe this same experience of being in their house and Eugene being at the kitchen window. So the kitchen window is looking out across the bay. And as you look across Flathead Lake, because their house is right on Flathead Lake, you're looking at the Mission and Swan Mountain Range uh, mountains, and most of the year they're going to be snow-capped. And so he's looking across this stunningly beautiful lake and looking at these mountains. And this would be the the vista of his life, really, this view. And he would just look at it and, and say almost to himself, ah, I love the sensuality of this place. And there was just something that was so wedded in his heart about that place. And I loved all those human things. Well, and I think with that, you're using different words. The word inviting just comes to my mind. It just, from the moment Bono got out of whatever vehicle he was in and he's walking up and they were there to greet him and just super sweet. And just, there was like a, just, it almost felt like time stood still. Like I felt, and Montana does that. I mean, every time you reference the word Montana in a book, I'm, I read much of the book on the beach in um, Naples, Florida, and I always think where you read a book is also important to the book itself. And it, my heart, I'd be on the beach, and I'm in front of the ocean and sand, and I'm with my wife. It's kind of our 20th anniversary trip, and I'm, my heart's just leaping. I'm like, I'm losing track of where I am, and I'm going to Montana. You've used two words, and there's a third word I like to use that I think we try to, we, we should, we want, I try to look at with a lens of anything and everything. And I'm curious what you think of these three words together. You've alluded to truth, and you said you loved how he lived a true life. The word beauty, the third word is redemption. Do those three words together mean something to you? And do you take a little bit of that from where Eugene is invested in you or other areas of life? But I just, I like to look at things and say, is, is what I've seen or experienced or this person, is it true? Is it beautiful? Is it redemptive? Yeah. Well, many ways you're just you know you're just describing the life of Jesus and and how Jesus operates in the world and makes us like him and so you know truth and beauty belong together because truth something that we say is true but it's not beautiful it's probably not true mm. and something that we say is beautiful but isn't really true is not going to be beautiful and truth and beauty working together that's what they do. They restore, they renew, they redeem, they, they take what's, what's lost or forgotten and they, they bring it back to life again. And there's so much about Eugene. I think that does reflect some of 
of why Eugene was such an impact for so many people on so many people because he spoke clear words. And I think in our day, words are often used manipulatively. They're used for ego. And I think with Eugene, his words were used carefully and they were used for the sake of love. And he, he cared a lot about not just truth sort of separated from its way in the world. So he would talk about the way of truth, that how you say something is just as important as what you say. Amen. And so if you if you speak something that you say is true, but it's not truly motivated and drowned in love, it's not really true anymore. It's st- it stops being true. And, and the redemption idea is certainly that Eugene was always coming alongside the broken places, the forgotten people, and speaking words of welcome and love. And I think we're just so hungry for that. Mm, amen. Amen. Yeah. I love what you're saying about the wordsmithing, because I think you made that clear in the book. And you did a good job. I thought, you know, that book could probably go on for hundreds and hundreds of pages more, but you did a good job of talking about controversy with it, breadth and depth, how it started one way and went a whole lot fuller with the message, which is obviously something he's most known for. And you know, I can't think of too many pastors I hear speak, I mean, unless they use King James Version or NIV exclusively, if they bounce around at all, the message is finding its way in there. And I loved how you definitely address that. So a big part of what you do now is, is you run the Peterson Center up in, in Michigan. So tell us about what you're doing there, the work there, some background about it, because it's not something I know enough about and I want to know more. And I'm sure that's something for other people to know more about. Sure. I had all of Eugene's archives, his journals and letters and manuscripts and began talking with the family about what, what are we going to do with these things when I'm finished with this research and two institutions had made requests for them and wanting to start a a center named after Eugene that would continue the kind of work he was doing. And those ended up being donated to Western Theological Seminary, which is in Holland, Michigan. And they asked me to come and help to start this center and direct it and caught me by surprise, but off we came. And the way I think about it is two things. One is it's always important for me to say what the Peterson Center isn't. We're not building an homage to Eugene. We're not just going to spend the next decade asking what would Eugene say about this and that. That would, I mean, he probably would come out of the grave and strangle me. Mm. But we are recognizing that Eugene was a witness to God, that Eugene carried on a, a tradition and pointed to God and that we are joining in that same story. And there were three kinds of people that Eugene was constantly drawn to and that they were drawn to him the first was pastors eugene i really don't think it's hyperbole to say among pastors he's probably the most influential voice of the past 50 or 60 years the second would be creative folk so musicians artists writers painters photographers there was this in this in community of creators who found eugene giving nobility to this work Mm. and naming why this is actually not a sidecar to the church and the gospel. This is part of God's kingdom. And there was a lot of integrity in how he approached those things. And so he he was in those circles. They were always asking him to be in those circles. And the third is, you know, probably harder to describe, but I, the the way I describe it is um, 
trying to remain hopeful and faithful, but often befuddled Christians. So mm. just Christians who who deeply want to know and follow God, but have this this aching sense that things are just so confusing right now. How do we do this? How do we be faithful in this time? And and Eugene is one of those voices who seems to be pointing to a way forward. And so at the Peterson Center, we are trying to continue those conversations. It's not rocket science. It's super simple. It's about God. We have lots of things, you know, for we have two doctor of ministry programs that we have. One is called Holy Presence, Eugene Peterson and the Pastoral Imagination. So that's designed for pastors. We have one called the Sacred Art of Writing. That's for writers. We're having circles of friendship and conversation for pastors, hopefully for um, some artists as well. We have host different conversations around beauty and faith and, and God. And in um, October, we're going to host a, a first gathering called Doxology, which is just going to be two days of having these kind of conversations, pointing our hearts toward God. I, I mean, it's, if there's anything that's at the heart of what Eugene did, he just stood in the middle of this world with his full human self and pointed to God. And that's how I want to spend my days too. Amen. That, that is that is so good. So talk a little bit more. I think you know. So me and five other guys are coming up there in October, partly through you and I just getting connected. I kind of found out about it and it popped up somewhere. I thought, hey, that sounds like something worth checking out. And my board has been gracious about giving me a retreat a month to do either solo or with some guys. So they were either crazy enough to trust me and think it was going to be good or they already knew about it. And we're super <laughs> pumped, but it, it happened really quick. So talk a little bit more about the yeah. uh, conferences followed doxology. Yeah. Well, I'm the sort that I, I'm kind of, sometimes I'm kind of leery of conferences, to be honest with you. I, I, uh, I think they can sometimes play into this sort of celebrity thing, but I, I keep coming back to this desire that I think a lot of us have to just be with other people in a room who have similar hopes and to name some things. And the most central thing I think that needs to be named in this moment is that we need God. I mean, I almost sometimes feel a little chagrined saying that because it feels like it's so simple and what you'd mm. expect a pastor to say. But I just, I think we have lots of God language. We do lots of God things. We do lots of things in God's name. But I'm not convinced that God is actually at the heart of what is our energy and our hope. And I think we just sometimes just need to be reminded that we can do God work and not really be encountering God. And so encountering God in, in beauty, and we're going to have poets there. We're going to have a pastor there. We're going to have a theologian there. We're going to have a lot of space for just conversation and openness. And we're keeping it on the smaller side because we want to, we want it to be relational. So yeah, I mean, we, we haven't done this before. This is our first time that we're organizing this, and I'm I'm really eager to see how it goes. Yeah, I'm super excited. What I liked was there's a mystery to it that I didn't really know what I'm getting myself into. It's not, you know, like I've, I've taken people to the Billy Graham Training Center, the Cove, and done things there. 
or we do this trip to Montana, not far from Flathead Lake, actually, or whatnot that way. But this was just kind of an unknown. We got an Airbnb so we could be in community while we're there those couple days. I know some people who are up and around that way and I'm saying, Hey, where's the coffee shop to go to? Where do we get dinner? All those kind of right. things. And, and it's just fun to think about exploring something like that. And when you guys said, I think you said the cutoffs at like 200 or less, you had me, I'm like, I don't want right. something with yep. 5,000 people. I want to you know, meet some people. And, and uh, so we have 23 small groups of men that meet on a typically bi-weekly basis. And I messaged the groups, group of guys that met this morning. It's our one virtual group. And, and one of the guys is up in Michigan and, I just said, you know, I love that as we're committed to each other and we're showing up, even on a screen, every couple of weeks, individually and collectively, we are being transformed into the image of Christ. What more is there? I mean, it's, it's that simple. If podcasting like this does nothing else for me, that I'm becoming more like Christ because you and I had a conversation, I'm in. Let's do it. If you become more like Christ because you had a conversation with me, Really, let's praise God for that. But nonetheless, that that's cool. And I and I and I like what you said. There's a lot of God language, but you know, are we really being changed? Or and there's no doubt. And when you think about all the things that have gone on in the world the last couple of years, clearly people need, want, are looking for Jesus, whether they say it that way or not. Whatever they think they're looking for, they're looking for needing and wanting Jesus. And I'm sure that'll be a big part of what doxology is going to be about. I'm guessing so. Hmm. Anyway, so let's let's get to something I like to do. These are called the rapid five. They're just short, simple, goofy kind of questions, but I think you'll have some good answers. So when you are, were growing up, what was your favorite childhood snack or cereal? <laughs> Honey Nut Cheerios. Ooh, I don't know that anybody's ever said that one, but I love that one for a long time too. That's a good answer right there. So what is your... And maybe we should keep it away from Eugene Peterson or yourself, but what is your favorite book you most like to gift to other people? Uh, Kent Haruff, Eventide. Eventide? Eventide. He's, he was a novelist in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Wow. You said that really quickly. I'm going to have to check that out. So tell me your family situation. My wife is Miska, spiritual director and yoga, yes. uh, yoga teacher, and two sons, Wyatt and Seth. That's right. And they're, how old are they, Wyatt and Seth? Uh, Wyatt's 19 and Seth is 18. Oh, wow. So you're just a touch real close. I got a ni- almost 19, 17, 15, 13-year-old. So let's say you're traveling and you guys are going wherever you're going on, on vacation, a good distance away. Maybe you're driving back to Waco and you planned on stopping you know, 30 minutes away, but all of a sudden one of the boys, because you said you have such a strong bladder, it wouldn't be you. Somebody has to stop and go to the bathroom. And you're like, well, I'm not stopping you know, 15, 20 minutes later, I'm going to do it now. And you see on the exit sign, you see these three places, McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, In-N-Out Burger. Where are you going? Oh, Chick-fil-A, not even a question. Have you been to In-N-Out? Yes. And are, yes. You, are you going to say they're overrated or is Chick-fil-A just that good? It's more about family cohesion. Like everybody can buy into Chick-fil-A. Okay, well, I- let, let's say they're not with you. You get the chance to make that decision. Probably Chick-fil-A just because I, I try to eat more chicken than beef these days. Okay. But because it's been so long since I've been to an In-N-Out Burger, I, in fact, uh, Saturday night we went to the Baylor. I was in Waco. We went to the Baylor-Kansas game, and we tried to go to In-N-Out afterwards because I haven't been to one in probably eight years. But it was wrapped around so many times we couldn't go in. So it, I would stop at In-N-Out at some point, but then I would return regularly to Chick-fil-A. Yeah. 
I just uh, talked to a pastor recently, and he crushed Chick-fil-A. He goes, I believe in his business, whatever, overrated. He goes, hands down, I'm taking McDonald's. And he went through, he buys their coffee. And I'm like, man, mm. my wife has asked me a couple times, what if you ever were to get canceled? And I'm thinking that's probably as close as I've ever been. I mean, when he he said McDonald's just crushed Chick-fil-A minus – you know, the, the fact he believes in a business, I thought that might get me canceled. So here's one for you, Win. What is the movie that if you were to be flipping channels, you're going through all your various streaming things, and you caught something midstream, what movie catches you every time, hook, line, and sinker? You got to stay with it. Man, what? Well, oof. oof. Um, Nacho Libre. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay, that's um, I can picture him. Mustache, dark hair. Yes. What's his name? Jack Black. Jack, Jack Black, Black, right? Yeah, he's he is a funny dude. I, I have not had that answer before. That's a good one. Now, here's the most important of these five questions. Who was your first celebrity crush? Oh, gosh. I honestly do not know. Uh, Minnie Mouse. Minnie Mouse. <laughs> I can honestly say no one has ever said that. So that's, that's a standalone <laughs> answer that way for sure. So you have two boys. And in this day and age, you know, a great joy, you know, thinking about it is my boys pulling them together. We do some kind of lack of a better term, shared parenting with some folks we're close to with girls being close, my daughter, daughters for them, my boys, whatever. When you think about your sons in, in today's day and age, what gives you great, great joy in thinking about them, where they are, where they're going to be with Jesus? And what just scares you to death, keeps you up at night? Like, wow, this is a difficult world we live in. Yeah. I think what scares me is is just what every, I think, parent faces, which is the absolute loss of control, that as they get older, any illusion that we had that we get to control their future in a world that this just last weekend, I asked my wife, do you think every generation feels like the world is just falling apart and crumbling? You know, because mm. it definitely feels that way some days. And and the fact that I don't get to control my my children's future and I can't protect them the ways that I would like to. I think as far as what I'm really hopeful for is that they're good young men. Like they love people and they have tender hearts and they're asking really hard but important questions. Mm. And for all of my failings as a dad, and I regret times where I really wish I had been different or better for them. I do believe that they know in their deep heart that they were truly loved. Mm. And I keep trusting that as the scripture says, that love covers a multitude of sins. Wow. Wow. We could be done right now. And you didn't need to say another word. And that really spoke to me. Thanks for that, that word of a encouragement, wisdom and, and challenge as well. I want to read a quote from your bio that I absolutely love. You say, I prefer what's slow over what's efficient. I'm some suspicious of anyone who's cocksure. I'm weary of the bullhorns. I'm partial to things that are worn and a bit ragged. I think truth is best told slant. I believe in hope. Talk more about that. You know, I I think I just, I think one word that's been repeated a couple times in our conversation has been that word human. And I think there's a lot about our world these days that feels dehumanizing and I think particularly those of us who are pastors or in places of leadership, uh, we can buy into this idea that we just need to talk louder and be more convincing and never show our underbelly and, and, 
and I just don't buy those things. I want to be someone who is truthful, truthful about my fear and truthful about my hope and truthful about my mistakes. And I, I don't, I don't trust people who are absolutely certain about everything, you know, mm -hmm. which is why I don't like Twitter. And so I love that, that line from Emily Dickinson, you know, tell the truth, but tell it slant, which means it's kind of like what we talked a while ago about there is truth. And then there is the way you deal with truth. And I just think truth, whether it's God's truth or any kind of truth is, is not something that you use as a bludgeon against mm -hmm. someone. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's inviting. We don't bludgeon people into the kingdom of God. <laughs> Jesus certainly didn't do that. Um, Jesus died, gave his life, surrendered. And I'm, I'm drawn to people who, when I encounter them, what I encounter is a human who has been obviously undone by the power of love. And Oof. so I want to experience that and I want to be that. Amen. That's so good. Give us in, in a short answer here. Back to Eugene real quick. What would be three words of wisdom he would give men? Since I'm focused on men with what I do, what would he tell the men of today are three things they need to keep on the forefront of their minds and hearts? You know, I'm super leery about putting words in Eugene's mouth, to be honest with you. Um, so if you let me, I will, I will say based on what I encountered of Eugene, how I would interpret it and offer it. Sure. But I would say, be leery of unholy ambition. Mm. Love the little things, not just the big things. And don't take yourself too seriously. Yeah, I, I believe that. I, I believe all three. I really believe that last one a lot. That's great. When what's what's next for you? What's something we can get excited about for you coming up? Yeah, I mean, I'm always writing. I don't know yet what the next project's going to be for sure. So you can just pray that I get clarity at some point. I have to circle around things for a while, so I've been circling for a bit. But yeah, I'm 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 eager about doxology and just what that's going to be, what that shape that's going to take, and and honestly, I'm personally excited about another summer in Holland, Michigan, because summers here are kind of magical. So mm, <laughs> what's, what's a book of yours out besides uh, burning in my bones that you would encourage people to, if there was, they only picked up one, what would be a book you would want them to read? You know, I really love the, the previous one I wrote. It's called uh, love big, be well. It's called an epistolary novel. That's the technical term, but it means a, a novel that was written through, through the form of letters. Mm. So it's a, it's a, it's a pastor who's writing letters to his church and, okay. uh, there's characters in that story that I love. And so, yeah, that's probably where I'd go. Very good. I'll check that out. Where would people go to find out more about what's going on with you and to engage what you're doing? You can go to petersoncenter.org for anything about the Peterson Center. We have an email list there you can sign up for. And then whencollier.com is my personal writing site. Wonderful. And folks, you can uh, see me and when in October in Michigan. So check out Doxology and, right. uh, yeah, there's, there's, uh, it's pretty, it's priced pretty well too. So there's a lot of wins about it. And it looks like there's some, uh, good eating to be had in Holland from what little research I've done so far. So when I really appreciate great. your time, you've been great. I appreciate you being committed to seeing this thing through and I feel richly blessed from our time together. Well, thank you for having me. It's a generous offer. Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. You can reach Jeff at gatheringmiamivalley.org or find us on Facebook at The Gathering of the Miami Valley. Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation.
the Rise FM Podcast Network.